This is The Guardian. Today, how the battle for Gaza could ignite the entire Middle East. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There you have a live images from Tel Aviv as President Biden steps out of Air Force One and begins his visit to Israel. An incredibly... For the past two weeks, world leaders have been in and out of Tel Aviv. They're paying their condolences for the more than 1,400 Israelis who died in a Hamas attack on October 7. I want to say to the people of Israel, their courage, their commitment, their bravery is, uh, is stunning. I'm proud to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And lending their support morally and militarily to Israel, whose airstrikes on Gaza have so far killed at least 5,000 people and counting. We will stand with you in solidarity. We will stand with your people. And we also want you to win. Thank you. But these leaders are also desperately trying to do something else, and that's prevent this conflict from getting even worse. Because this isn't just a fight between Hamas and Israel. Behind both of them, bigger forces are quietly taking their positions. On Israel's northern border, there's already a shooting war with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Should the war against Hamas escalate, this could be the flashpoint. There are allies of Iran firing rockets and artillery from neighbouring Lebanon and sending the message they could invade Israel any time. And in the Mediterranean Sea, two giant US warships sending a blunt reply that if Israel is attacked, the US could strike back. Two aircraft carrier battle groups, not to provoke, but to deter, uh, to make clear that uh, if anyone tries to do anything, uh, we're there. They're all watching each other's every move, just watching and waiting. And any misstep, any miscalculation, could tip the entire region into war. The whole region is at the brink of falling into the abyss. The threat of this war expanding is real. All our efforts are needed to make sure we don't get there. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how the fighting between Hamas and Israel could spin even further out of control and how it can still be reined in. Jason Burke, you're The Guardian's international security correspondent. And like most of us, you've been watching the events in Israel and Palestine really closely. The attention for the past couple of weeks has been on Israel's southern front with Hamas, but now focus is shifting to the northern border with Lebanon, where events have been escalating every hour. It's so tense there. Take us through what's been happening on that border since the Hamas massacres two weeks ago. 
Well, on the border, you have an existing state of low-level conflict anyway, even before the events of October the 7th. To the north is Hezbollah, a Shia Muslim Islamist organization that was founded in the aftermath of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon of 1982. It's got very, very close links to Iran. Iran subsequently has used Hezbollah as a proxy in the region. It's its most powerful proxy, really, uh, a very formidable fighting force. Israeli guns erupt in the country's north. Their angry fire targeting positions in neighboring Lebanon. Revenge for missiles and mortars launched into Israel. In recent days, weeks, you've seen a steady escalation of clashes along that border. The Israelis have evacuated 28 villages, worried about some kind of raid or incursion, same kind of terrorist attack that we saw on October the 7th. They've been firing into Lebanon at targets which they say are Hezbollah or militant groups trying to attack them. Uh, they've caused fatalities there. There have been fatalities both sides, in fact. And things are steadily escalating along that border, which raises the very worrying prospect of what happens next. And before we get to what happens next, Hezbollah have fought wars with Israel in the past, most recently in 2006. But what is their connection to Hamas? Why are they getting involved in all this? Hamas, Hezbollah and Iran all form part of an axis of resistance, so-called. The Hamas attacks of October the 7th almost certainly had some kind of Hezbollah input, experts have told me. The main point is that Hezbollah will be confronted with a difficult decision if the Israelis go into Gaza and look like they are going to completely crush Hamas. The real decision maker on that, though, is going to be Iran. And both Hezbollah and Iran have significant reasons to want to manage a conflict uh, with Israel and not let it get completely out of control. I think they, like everybody else, recognises that if the conflict in Gaza starts to become a much broader regional conflict, it could very swiftly escalate into a really major global crisis and plunge the region into chaos and violence of the likes which we haven't seen for a decade or so since maybe Iraq. So let's explore that risk for a moment. Israel have a huge, technologically advanced and well-funded army. What kind of threat do they face from Hezbollah? Hezbollah pose a much more significant threat to Israel than Hamas does. They now have maybe 20,000 kind of fully trained fighters with salaries who are ready to go at any moment. They can mobilize another 20-30,000 reservists if you like. Most of all they've got about 150,000 rockets and missiles and projectiles and these are largely considerably more accurate and destructive than anything Hamas has and they would be targeting Israel's vital infrastructure, population centers and really doing some very serious damage. Now, that could lead to the US particularly seeing um, Israel as facing an existential threat and then intervening. But despite those resources at their disposal, you said that Hezbollah and behind them Iran probably don't want this to escalate. Why do we think they feel that way? 
And how do the Israelis feel about fighting a war on that border? We're hearing claims from Washington that they've uh, managed to get Netanyahu to postpone a preemptive attack on Hezbollah. I mean, my sense there is that it's kind of somebody saying, you know, hold me back, hold me back, please, uh, on the brink of having a fight that they really don't want. Um, The last thing that Netanyahu wants to be doing now is trying to fight a two-front war, particularly against an opponent that is as formidable as Hezbollah. Hezbollah would probably quite welcome a short conflict, which would make it clear that they are still faithful to their original aims as an organisation. But a major conflict would lead to quite possibly very significant casualties, uh, massive destabilisation in Lebanon and in the region, and the exhaustion, if you like, of, of their rocket stocks, which is a major arm and one that Iran needs to keep to wield as a deterrent against Israel. So there are lots of reasons why Hezbollah would not necessarily want to get involved. There are many, many reasons why the Israelis don't want a war at the moment. But with the tensions so high, it wouldn't take much, even a mistake by either side, for something to suddenly escalate. And that's exactly where we'd be. And so neither side wants a major war, but we might get a major war anyway. What could the trigger for that be? Well, a trigger for major war would be a rocket strike from the Hezbollah side of the border that kills a large number of Israelis. It could be an Israeli ground invasion in Gaza that would cause absolutely huge civilian casualties, uh, even beyond those that we're seeing at the moment, and just make it impossible for Hezbollah to stay out of a conflict and maintain any kind of credibility. I mean, all of these are possible. I don't think we know. Speaking to one expert last week, who just said, listen, there was a pre-October the 7th and a post-October the 7th, and all the paradigms that we had adopted previously, which gave us a grid for calculating the behaviour of certain actors, just don't apply any longer. Mm. Uh, It's just very, very difficult Mm. to say what's going to happen. But... We do have a sense of, if Israel and Hezbollah do go to war, what might happen next? So run me through that scenario. The apocalyptic scenario, if you like, is um, Hezbollah and and Israel go to war. Hezbollah are firing massive amounts of really potent uh, and accurate missiles into Israel. They're causing very significant casualties. The IDF is trying to fight a two-front war, can't really cope. Vital infrastructure is going down. The Americans decide that there is an existential threat to its biggest ally in the Middle East. Use the planes they've got now stationed on the carriers in the Eastern Med to hit Hezbollah. Mm. Iran see this as an attack on its vital interests, step up its proxies everywhere. It's got possible presence to attack Israeli, certainly US interests as this destabilizes much of the region and beyond. The oil prices would spike massively. There'd be a global stock market crash. I mean, you know, we're not quite in the realms of science fiction here, but I mean, you can take this as far as you want in imagining what it would look like. I think that at some point, wiser heads would prevail and and there's there's enough there are enough safeguards to stop that happening. But I, I mean, it's a, it is a possibility. As I said, we're in a new world. 
in what way is it a new world? How has this Hamas attack changed the way we think of the region and of how it operates? You know, we're not in just a, a straight binary situation where we once were, say, with the Hamas-Israel conflicts over the last decade or so, um, nor even with the Hezbollah-Israel hostilities that have been you know, up and down for, well, since 1982, effectively, which were to some extent predictable. This is something much more complicated and, and, and new, and I don't think anybody really knows where it will go. That's why the current priority is not to resolve anything, not to find an answer to anything, not to find any kind of certain way out, but simply to de-escalate, try and bring down levels of violence, tension, polarisation incrementally in the hope that that will open up a space for further de-escalation and eventually you get to a much better place where people can consider their options in a way that will benefit everybody rather than simply leading to further violence. Okay, so that is the apocalyptic nightmare scenario, one that many have been working hard to try to avoid. The US and other Western leaders, including the UK, have been on the surface full throttle in their support for Israel and have offered military support, have offered moral support, have been visiting the country in a kind of carousel of official state visits. But have they been doing anything behind the scenes to avoid the kind of escalation that you've just laid out for us? I think the Western diplomatic effort has been focused largely on Israel. And the strategy there, I'm told, is that you have to hug the Israelis close, basically. Mm. And a hug can be quite restraining if you get it right. Um, Mm. The Israelis are not going to listen to criticism from anyone they think is hostile. That's the logic in terms of what many of the Western governments are thinking about. Some governments um, are quite divided over which um, policy to pursue. Uh, The EU is clearly very divided about which stance to take and how to balance the need to reassure the Israelis and the need to highlight the humanitarian and other consequences of their military action in Gaza. Ahead of a meeting to resolve divisions, there was confusion and U-turns. Following Hamas's surprise assault on Israel, the EU's neighbourhood commissioner, Olivier Vahe, took to social media to announce that payments from an aid package worth 691 million euros would be halted. But the bloc appears to have backpedalled, with its chief diplomat now insisting that aid will continue. But the, the Western outreach is designed to reassure the Israelis, to reassure them that Israel is safe, and so hopefully allow them to respond to the situation rather than react in a way that might be counterproductive. And that was certainly the message that Biden took to Israel when he visited last week and encouraged the Israelis to think about the mistakes that the US had made when it was, as he put it, consumed by anger and wanting justice after the 9-11 attacks. Justice must be done. 
But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. Qatar and Turkey are both talking to Hamas. And that we know much less about exactly what they're saying. You know, the French are calling everybody they know and they have better contacts in Iran. The idea of all this stuff is to just build this kind of web of contacts and conversations and relationships that will slow down the rush to a kind of all-out regional conflict, which everybody is obviously most worried about. Tell me about the role that Qatar is playing in this situation, because they actually house the political leadership of Hamas, but they've also been instrumental in the release of hostages. So where do they sit in this conflict? Qatar playing an absolutely key role at the moment. I mean, Qatar have got links with Hamas. They have good relations with the Israelis since the early 90s. Um, They have excellent relations with the US, or certainly great credibility with the US. And by design, (laughs) they have placed themselves in a position of being a real asset in this conflict and really hold the key to de-escalation. I think most people recognise that. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, every world leader has been calling the Qataris because they're, they're kind of the the fixer now for everybody's problems in the Middle East. And what about Israel's Arab neighbours, especially the two that have signed peace deals with Israel, so Egypt and Jordan? Those peace deals have never been popular. Now we're seeing huge protests on the streets of Cairo and on Jordan's border with Israel as King Abdullah of Jordan or President Sisi of Egypt are watching this scenario unfold, what kinds of calculations are they making? Well, I think that's absolutely the question, isn't it? I mean, it's quite interesting how you know the conventional wisdom was that the Palestinian cause had really lost a lot of its power on the streets, as it were, on a, as a mobilising factor. But it's pretty clear that it hasn't. And I think a lot of that is partly due to the fact that it remains really fundamental to a lot of people in the Arab and Islamic world. As Western leaders continue to publicly back Israel's right to defend itself, in streets across the world, thousands of people rallied in support of Palestinians. After Friday prayers, huge numbers staged protests in Iraq and in Jordan. I think also it is a useful way of expressing much broader discontent in the region with governments. That might actually be more dangerous in some ways. I I can't see at the moment any sign that the size of demonstrations is likely to really endanger any regimes, but it's definitely a factor. We've also seen over the past few years, countries like the UAE, like Sudan, like Morocco, sign normalisation agreements that recognise Israel's existence for the first time and set up diplomatic relations. Saudi Arabia was negotiating one of those deals too over the past few months. What happens to those negotiations now? I mean, I think anything with Saudi Arabia is going to be very tricky for some time. But what about those older deals? Do they hold? It would be a major step to kind of break the deal, as it were, to to abrogate any agreements with significant consequences. On the other hand, it may just be seen as politically untenable to do anything else. I mean, we really are in uncharted territory. What I think is certain is that this has brought the 
Palestinian cause right back into the centre of the debate in the region and more broadly after many years where either consciously or unconsciously moves were made to marginalise the issue. Coming up, reasons why the worst-case scenario, a full-blown regional war, could be averted. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Jason, on Monday, Hamas announced it was releasing more Israeli hostages, which is fantastic news for their families, though dozens remain in custody. Is that news the kind of thing that gives you hope that the worst case scenario that you've laid out for us is not actually where we're going to end up here? I think there are lots of things that that mean that the worst case scenario just won't happen. Uh, And one is there's just way too many people who don't want it to happen. Even if publicly they're being very vocal, the consequences will be devastating for everybody. The US and China and the EU and others are all working to slow down any escalation, as are lots of major Arab powers and some important minor ones. Now, that the hostages are really interesting because the hostages could be a real force for de-escalation, hmm. equally for escalation. I, I mean, you know, so at least the hostages mean that someone somewhere has got to indirectly talk. There have to be some confidence-building measures that mean we do this and you do that. 
and that could take us in a better direction. Alternatively, it could be the opposite. The hostages start to die or are not released. There is greater humanitarian suffering inflicted in a bid to get the hostages out. And it takes us, in a, as I say, in a much more negative and dangerous place. So the hostages are, are really important because it, it's one of those uh, kind of fulcrum that, or pivot. You could go either way with it. And I think that's the other thing is the risks everywhere are absolutely huge. Uh, miscalculations, miscommunications, public anger, rage, polarisation, social media, all of this doesn't help. But one hopes that with enough people and enough leaders that the absolute worst will be avoided. As you lay that out, it sounds like if there is a solution to this, nobody knows what it is yet. And so what they're trying to do instead is just slow the escalation down as much as possible in the hope that somehow a solution does present itself. People are talking about off-ramps. The idea is that an off-ramp is like, you know, in a war that you can give two sides and a means of getting out of the conflict reasonably and with some kind of public credibility. And as the phrase suggests, that you know, the conflict slows and then kind of stops. I don't think anyone thinks that's going to happen. But what can happen is de-escalation. And that, in all my conversations in the last 10 days, that's what the word that just comes back in every different language every different way. In a way, it's quite depressing because de-escalation is, it just means dropping the violence by a notch. That still means a lot of people dying and suffering. So it means a lot of people frightened and grieving. You know, it doesn't take you to a brilliant place immediately, but it's an initial step. And I think the most optimistic thing is there are a lot of people having those conversations and, and a lot of the major players and a lot of important actors are also absolutely not committed to all-out, full-on, chaotic violence in the immediate. Uh, It's not, you know, the best news one can hope for, but it is better than it could be in other scenarios. Well, Jason, it sounds like it's as good as we're going to get, at least today. Thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. And that was Jason Burke, The Guardian's international security correspondent. You can follow his and all our coverage of the Israel-Hamas war at theguardian.com. And just before we go, last week we spoke to Sharon Lifshitz, who spoke really powerfully about her fears that her parents may have been kidnapped by Hamas. Late on Monday, Hamas announced that her mother, who's 85 years old, had been released. And that is it for today. I'm Michael Safi, and this episode was produced by Natalie Ktenat. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Homa Khalili. And we'll be back with you tomorrow. This is The Guardian.